Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Thank you for joining the Alts Podcast. Hope you're having a good day. Today we're talking about creating content and the current state of the sports memorabilia market with Sam Farber. Sam is the head of business development and content at Golden Auctions, the industry leader in sports collectibles. In this episode, we talk about the importance of creating content to stay relevant, the cyclical nature of the sports marketplace, and future projects at Golden. We begin today's episode talking about the Jackie Robinson-themed auction at Golden, celebrating the 75th anniversary of his historic Major League Baseball debut. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam. All right, guys. So uh, thank you, Sam, for joining us on the Alts Podcast today. Really appreciate uh, you being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Sam, you know, I heard a podcast, I don't know, I think maybe it might have been on Collectible with Alan, where you talked about their auction that's ongoing right now. And it's a, it's like a Jackie Robinson themed uh, auction. And you got to actually hold his jersey, a game used jersey. And uh, I just thought, I put myself in your shoes for a minute there and just thought about how cool that would be. Could you talk about that, you know, about that that item and the auction in general? Yeah, so we we do have a Jackie Robinson themed auction that actually just went live. So anyone who wants to can actually go in there and place bids on it. And the three marquee items or three of the marquee items in that auction are items that Jackie Robinson himself, you know, used war and, and were gifted. And I can talk through them because they're they're pretty crazy and Sometimes being in this industry, you can get desensitized to just seeing tens of millions of dollars of cards on a table or insane historic artifacts right in front of you. But there are certain things that really transcend even the insane amount of stuff that we come across in our field. And for me, as somebody who grew up a diehard baseball fan, I grew up in Boston, so I wasn't a Dodger fan, but I grew up a diehard baseball fan. And I think baseball of all sports is so tied to its history. And Jackie is just like in this like rarefied air as a public figure, as you know, a, a civil rights activist and as a player. And so it's so unusual when you actually get the opportunity to like touch something that was his, that he wore, that he used in the game. So we have three unbelievable items in this auction. One of them is a 1951 game-worn jersey. I mean, it's in beautiful condition. It's it's incredible. And it was just like, as I said, it was just like a, a real treat to hold that in my hands and like imagine that he actually wore it in a game. We also have a bat that he used in the 1949 All-Star game. So not that he used in that game and it like, again, it's in really good condition. <laughs> you actually don't appreciate like how heavy those bats were back then. I mean, we sold a Ty Cobb bat in our past auction and it's like pretty heavy. You don't, you don't appreciate that. Like everybody back then, the, the, the like exercise and weightlifting regimens weren't quite what they are today. These guys are like wielding these like actual like trees at the plate. So we have that. And then we have a really unique item, which is, the Hall of Fame 
presentation plaque that he was given during his enshrinement in 1962. So basically when a player is enshrined into the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame gives them a small version of the plaque that lives in the Great Hall in Cooperstown. It's in a nice little frame and it's literally like the thing, the one singular small plaque the commemorative plaque that is given to the actual inductee. And we have that actual plaque that was handed to him. So we have other Jackie Robinson items of crazy cards in there. We have other game worn bats, our game used bats, but those three things to me are just like, they definitely sit atop the, the heap in terms of just like completely unique, special, like once in a lifetime stuff that's available. I love seeing things like that. I love seeing things with like historic value, you know, that always catches my attention. And it's, it goes beyond the card, right? It's actually something that, I don't know, it has extra significance. You know, I also saw one thing. I started getting lost in the auctions. Uh, you have like 4,000 items in that auction you just included, uh, we're talking about. And you also have like this Gil Hodges game use jersey. Is that correct? Yeah, we do. I think that, that one's also from 1951. That just caught my attention because I'm a Mets fan. So like, you know, Hodges as the manager of the 69 Mets, I was like, I was just looking at him. And I, I, last night I was looking at it for like 30 minutes at the auction, but that one, I was looking at it for like 10 minutes, just like, man, wouldn't that be sweet? <laughs> I honestly, as a, as an asset class, I mean, I'll, I'll parrot Ken because I know that Ken personally is a huge game worn, um, memorabilia collector and always has been just something that speaks to him. But I still think that the game worn collectibles are undervalued. I really do. I think they're undervalued when you look at where they're priced and how what they go for relative to trading cards. And I love trading cards too, but when you look at where they go relative to trading cards, it's kind of crazy sometimes where you see like a modern card that'll sell for multiple times, like the actual game worn Jersey that a hall of fame player wore, you know, in pivotal moments in their best season. It's crazy. And I, we've definitely seen an upward trend on the game worn memorabilia and game worn collectibles market, but I still think there's just a lot of room there because this stuff is it's history. I mean, just as the, like for you, it just, that was actually worn by, you know, like this iconic guy an iconic baseball legend manager, the 69 Mets. Like these are like truly one of ones, right? I mean, it's like the only, like there's tiny, like most of these things are, are just one of a kind, like unique things that are, are honestly just like priceless parts of history. So I, I love that stuff. I, I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's what's going on at Golden right now. And I kind of want to mention one more thing because I'm noticing a collision. You had some interesting items. You had a couple of tickets, F1 tickets, of Ayrton Senna's uh, first like podium, his first uh, uh, victory. For me, it was an interesting collision between F1, which is like zooming up, with tickets, which is another market that is coming up. I'm like, I wonder how these items are going to do because you know Senna is like a legendary figure in the sport. And now I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, this would be similar to, I don't know, having maybe a, a player's first, first touchdown in football, or maybe even a first championship. It's kind of, it's kind of like it has historic significance. No question. No question. I had the same reaction. It was really interesting to see. And it's funny, as you see the ticket market exploding, you start to see it branching out into other sports. I mean, I don't, I think it's not crazy to think that it'll it'll branch out into other things I mean, we see it with concerts we see it with i mean there'll probably be some uh, original movie tickets and things like that that 
come out because of their piece of history. But yeah, I mean, I think with F1, as there's just been so much interest and so much activity there across F1 collectibles, I'm very curious to see what the price is because that market is sorting itself out. And as you said, the ticket market is sorting itself out, but it stands to reason that those should be very, very desirable items just as the debut of like all time legends tickets are also insanely desirable. And we see those prices like honestly continuing to like top each other for some of those, like some of those like really, really special tickets. We've got another mail debut in here for debut, which always does well. We have Larry bird debut. I'm a, I'm a big Boston sports fan, big Celtic fan. So that will definitely get out of my price range as a, as a buyer very quickly, but I'm super excited to see where that ends up. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely psyched to see the F1 tickets in there. It definitely caught my attention when I was looking through. It's insane. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> and, and you talked about that before, being desensitized to being around this stuff. I mean, is that, is that a thing? Like, can you actually be desensitized to it? <laughs> I think you, you can be desensitized to almost anything, right? I mean, it's you know, in my last job, you were around, you know, NBA players and around celebrities and around, you know, all sorts of folks. And at first your head is spinning when you're in the same room as some of these guys. And then after time, you're like, okay, you know, like, it's not, it's not, it's no less cool than it was. It's just that it doesn't quite like, you know, just knock your socks off the way it did that, you know, the first time I'll never forget the first time I was ever around famous, like the, the top, top, top echelon NBA players. I went to the blue and white team scrimmage uh, I think it was 2010. It was at Radio City and they were scrimmaging each other. So it was the US team and it was an extended pool. And I was there, like, and it was it was crazy. They were like playing on the stage. And I was literally standing on like the side of this court that they had constructed. And it was all like literally all of the best players in the league at the time. And I thought I was going to pass out. You know, I was wearing a elite credentials, my first time wearing it. And I was, you know, 23 years old and I was trying to keep it, hold it together and like play it cool. But I literally felt like, like I was like paralyzed. I think I just like kind of sat there under one of the baskets and like just didn't move and like hope they wouldn't see me. But over time, of course, I got more comfortable. So I think it's the same thing here. It's like the first time that you hold a T206 Honus Wagner, or you hold a Jordan Game Worn jersey or something like that in your hand. It's like, oh, oh my God, it's like the most insane, like religious experience. And then you sort of like, you know, get used to seeing, as I said, tens of millions of dollars sitting on a table. But it, to me, it doesn't make any less cool. It just... Uh, I guess you, you know what it is. You're just you're you handle it in a fashion like you're more cool. <laughs> like you're you know <laughs> you're better adjusted to handling it. Let's talk about that a little bit because I did want to talk to you about what you did before in the NBA. You were you know in charge of the digital content. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I had a I had a lot of different roles there, but they were all uh, all around digital content and digital strategy and, and yeah, basically all in the sort of like digital and social media ecosystem. Yeah. And then you went to Golden, uh, where right now you're the head of business development and content as well. How is that different? And what is that like to, to be kind of the head of content? Like, are you overseeing everything that gets put out on social media? And to that extent, like, how different is it working in the NBA where, like you mentioned before, you're dealing with these, uh, you know, these superstars. And now you're kind of dealing with the superstar. The stars are the items, right? The collectibles are the star of the show, plus Ken Golden, right? So... <laughs> 
you know, could you talk about that difference and kind of the carryover? Yeah. I think honestly, the fundamentals of the two businesses, I mean, while they make money different ways, I'm still in very similar functions. I, my time at the NBA, I basically spent about half my time there overseeing digital content, like sort of soup to nuts and spent a lot of time in the production and publishing and the actual like making of the sausage. And then I spent a bunch of time towards the you know sort of second half of my decade plus career there that mostly focused more on the strategy analytics side of that same content, but also on the business development associated with it. So the distribution of that content, the licensing of that content, where that content lives, brokering the deals with the digital distributors to make that content available to fans. And so a lot of those same fundamentals are the same fundamentals that I use today at Golden. The nature of the businesses are very different. The NBA you know, has been around since the 1940s and is a multi, 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 multi billion dollar, like gigantic league um, with incredible name recognition. And, you know, it's actually a smaller staff than you think it is, but it had a lot of employees, certainly relative to what we have today. When I got to Golden, it was 30 something employees. It was pre-acquisition. So we, you know, we subsequently been acquired by a holding company called Collectors Holdings or within the same sort of general holding company as uh, PSA and WADA and PCGS and some other tech investments that we've made as a holding company. And so when I got here, it was very much in a place of, of sort of transition from the business that Ken had built to really blowing it out and, and scaling up. And so that part was very different. They didn't have, there was no infrastructure on the content side because we hadn't built it yet. We, you know, business development was a lot of just Ken's relationships and deals he had done. We hadn't really like systematically built out that either. There obviously weren't like, there wasn't like a huge staff of people to do all the work. So I was doing a lot of stuff myself. I couldn't really lean on, you know, a larger organization the way I did at the NBA. I would say fortunately and unfortunately, I didn't have to deal with, I didn't deal with the players a whole ton, except when I was more on the content, like actual capturing and publishing of its side, we did some stuff with them directly. So it wasn't something that I had to necessarily actively manage, but certainly there are big personalities in the league, at the league office among executives and other employees. Those big personalities exist in spades at Golden. Um, Ken is a, has a great personality. He's an entertainer. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a trip. He, he really is. So I think there's, you know, I'm used to dealing with, with that. And look, both, I'd say both companies are, are you know, they're both growing. They're in different, in, they're like in adjacent industries, but they're both growing. They're both like kind of scrappy and growth minded. And they're both really fast paced and high octane cultures and environments. So it's not as different as you may think it is on first blush. Um, to answer your other question, yes, I everything that we publish, everything that we make, everything we put out in the world from a content perspective is on is on my team. It's been a blast to build that up. You know, it really has. And we built a studio in our office in Rudnick, New Jersey. Uh, we've built out a, an amazing, lean, mean content team, and it's been awesome to you know experiment with different types of content. We're now putting out you know hundreds of pieces of content a month, thousands of pieces of content a year. And we've really like propped up that entire operation from nothing in the last 12 months, which has been incredibly rewarding to watch 
Um, and honestly, a testament to the people we've brought into the building, not me, the people like on our content team that we brought to the building who are unbelievable. So it's been awesome. You know, up until maybe I started doing a podcast and you know doing some writing for alts, I never really understood what a what a grind content creation is. It's not just a matter of creating content, right? Anybody can create content, but it's is this going to engage? Is this something that people are going to enjoy? Are they going to take a little uh, some value from that? I was on the Instagram page for Golden, and uh, some of the stuff just made me. You know, I was just cracking up with some of the stuff there. The guy that invested 500k on uh, Andrew Luck, I think. I was like, oh my goodness! And it's just video a video of him just going through. Thousands of Andrew Luck cards. <laughs> what is this? Um, so my question is like, what is that like? I mean, are you, you say it's, it's a ton of fun. Is there sort of a, a pressure cooker to stay relevant? And like you said, it's always changing. So you, you almost have to like be aware of the, what's happening, right? The news cycle. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a pressure cooker in this industry because even in the time that I've been here, so I've been at Golden now for a little over a year um, as of a week ago. So like right, someone like week 53. And in that year, the like the entire industry's gotten a heck of a lot more competitive on every front. It's, you know, players coming in that do almost anything. And the content has gotten a lot more robust. The competition for eyeballs is robust. And then you have to pan out. And this is what, you know, Adam Silver used to say this at the NBA, and I'm sure he still does. But Adam used to say that you know, the NBA isn't competing with the other sports leagues per se. It's competing with anything that somebody could spend their time and money on instead. And so if you have a Friday night and $150, you could choose to buy a couple tickets to a game and go to a game, or you could choose to go with your significant other out to dinner. You could choose to do almost anything with that money. It's not necessarily you know, hey, I'm watching the NFL and not watching another sport. It's, it's often not that. It's, it's actually much more of like a macro competition than that, right? It's like you could watch a basketball game or you could watch Netflix or you could watch HBO Max. And so in our case, it's a lot of the same pressures that exist when it comes to content. It's we're fighting for eyeballs, not just with others in the hobby, but we're fighting for eyeballs with anybody who's putting content out on social. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. And as you've discovered, you know, sort of diving headfirst into it, the algorithms change constantly. You have to know what's going on. You have to know what's resonating. You have to look at the data as to what you're seeing, what content's working, what's not. You have to see what's resonating. You have to see what others are doing. Like you have to just be, you have to have your head on the swivel. And in addition, what I think makes running a like corporate quote unquote account challenging is that you just can't go like, oh, I'm just going to make a viral hit account or whatever it might be because we're selling things. We have a business to run. Like we've got to, you know, we have to service our consigners, the sellers of all the incredible things that are in our auction. We don't own those things. They do. And I want to make sure that we're telling the story of the things that they're selling. And I want to make sure that they're being serviced, that we're providing that to them. So it's like, how do you achieve the company's goals? How do you further the business while simultaneously adhering to all the best practices that are constantly changing on every single platform. And then on top of all of that, how do you actually break through and remain relevant and get the necessary eyeballs? And how do you do all of that while like literally hurtling through the, through the air at a ridiculous speed? And that's basically what content is like. So yeah, it's definitely very challenging. It's almost like a, it's art, right? Putting out some of this stuff, even if it's a 30 second clip, you know, it's, there's a, there's a certain 
art to it. With that being said, this is just kind of an aside. I mean, is there that danger? Is there that worry at, at an auction house like Golden? I mean, there's a bunch of great auction houses, right? And I know you don't want to come at it from a point of arrogance or a point of, well, you know, here we are. We're, we're, you know, we're owned by Collector's Universe, you know, the holding group. Or is that dangerous? Is that a dangerous way to think? It's a very dangerous way to think. I mean, we can't at any point rest on our laurels. We built a great brand. Ken is one of a kind and he'll remain a huge differentiator for our company and a competitive advantage for our company. We've been fortunate to, through a lot of the work that he put in for over the last 10 years before any of us got here, you know, we've, we've built up an amazing customer base and we have a track record of getting big prices, which does in a way like give us a leg up to get great consignment. Like one of the, you know, the not so secret secrets of the industry is that like supply is the most important thing, right? It's like supply often, especially in the super unique uh, memorabilia category or cards or whatever it might be like supply typically drives demand because if there's things that are truly one of a kind, a lot of the collectors will find it. Certainly we have to market and we have to put content out there and like we have to do everything we can and make sure we get eyeballs, but supply is essential. And so a lot of the work that Ken's done has given us access to incredible supply and will continue to give us access to it. But that's not even close to enough to, you know, to rest. And as I mentioned earlier, there are new entrants coming in all the time. What we've noticed is that buyers are and sellers are more and more and more educated. They know what things should go for. There have been more sales, even of rare things. So they know what the market is. When you have competition among a bunch of different competitors for their business and for those consignments can you know, create price wars. There's just a lot of stuff out there. And so it's on us to make sure that we're continuing to evolve in every facet of our business. And so I think, yeah, we can use the fact that, you know, we're fairly well capitalized as being part of collector's holdings. Like we have some advantages that come as a result of that, but eBay has advantages from being gigantic and being publicly traded and, you know, fanatics who's coming into the market, they're incredibly well capitalized and and they've got some advantages. So we all have advantages. I think for the moment we just start to like lean on those and take our foot off the gas is, is when, is when you get in trouble. So we're, we're very much of like a, you know, the continually iterate, we're very much of the growth mindset. There's zero complacence in our, in our company. I can assure you that. And part of that, always kind of, you know, having one foot forward, uh, that growth mindset. Uh, and in fact, we could talk about that, uh, the most recent piece of content that got grabbed headlines everywhere, at least if you were on Twitter or on Instagram, was Drake. It's huge. I think people don't really, I don't, I still don't. Uh, you know, as a sports fan, I think of, of athletes as like the most famous people, you know, in the world. And they pale in comparison to these musicians, right? Like who, who's going to know like Anthony Edwards or or some of these guys or, or even Jay, John Moran, right? In the States, no doubt. But Drake is like worldwide legit, you know. So you got him to come on a, on a, on a break uh, with, with Ken Golden. It was amazing because, you know, here he had these, uh, these flawless cases, uh, which I know are hard to come by. And he was ripping and having a good time. My question is, how do you come up with getting someone like Drake to, to break, you know, with you guys? And what is the reaction to having a celebrity in the hobby, right? Because it can be looked at two different ways, right? Like it could be looked at as, you know, as, as great, we're, we're growing the hobby. Or it can also be looked at as uh, these guys are shilling. They're, they're getting these guys that are going to pump it up and, and, you know, and make it unaffordable for everybody else. 
how do you address those things? How do you balance that? Yeah, so I can I can answer the first question first. Uh, Drake collects Drake collects cards. He's gotten more into it recently. He's on his own popped into late night breaks and sort of like box openings of various cards on a number of different accounts on the card porn account on Ken Golden's account. He popped in like Ken will often do breaks at night with his son or he'll like rip boxes with his friends. Like we will, you know, those are things where he hasn't like sold spots. It's literally just opening valuable wax just because he wants to. And so Drake originally kind of got connected to him that way. But Drake is Drake has collected cards. And I think he's getting more and more into it. So that was really the genesis of, of how this happened. I mean, it's honestly a, a huge credit to Ken who like, you know, Ken who really like put himself out there and, and sort of orchestrated that and flew up there. And it was, it was an incredible, incredible event. And I'm glad they got some hits and it was great to see Drake's reaction and just see how excited he got by it and how like very legitimately he was interested in the, in the hobby and in the space, which was awesome to answer the second question. Ultimately, it's to me, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats. I think the more mainstream the hobby gets, the more mainstream this industry gets, the better it is for literally everybody in it. With anything, you're going to have people who hate on everything, who criticize it. But as far as I'm concerned, people pay zillions of dollars for Drake to endorse all kinds of different products. It's an objectively good thing for someone with that amazing global influence that you just mentioned to be like, I like trading cards. <laughs> I'm into this. This is great. Like, I'm not just saying for Golden as a company, because a bunch of companies were involved in, in what went on there. And Ken was obviously there. and We were prominent in it, but it was it was a whole bunch of people. You know, it was Panini and David Adams and Cardporn. There were a whole bunch of others that were that were involved and that benefited. But to me, it's beyond any of our individual companies. Like the whole point of it is that the entire hobby benefits because it's just another example of, hey, this isn't just something that your kid is doing. This isn't just something that some like weird nerdy people like me are doing. This is something that celebrities, it's getting mainstream. This is something that a lot of folks are into. So for me, it's, it's a good thing. I'm not worried about the effect of like, you know, them driving prices up or anything like that. I mean, I certainly think, you know, more demand could apply sort of an upward pressure on price when competition comes in. But it's unlikely that a celebrity like Drake is going to, you know, move the entire market where things are going to become unaffordable as a result of his place or entry into a market like that. I'm not so worried about that. But uh, that, that would be how I'd, how I'd respond to that sort of macro issue. I'd say overall, it's a, it's a huge, huge, huge positive. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the other part of that, I guess the, the specific criticism was, oh, you know, he had a bunch of boxes. He opened up a bunch of boxes and he hit on a, an 86 Fleer uh, Jordan rookie. And everyone's like, that's got to be planted. There's no way that uh, that he just happened to, to, you know, get that. And I'm hearing all sides from it, you know, like on, on social media, like you really think that somehow they were able to plant this Jordan rookie card. Could you kind of give us like, if you can, like some sort of background on like, how difficult that is and, and kind of like just how things aren't really the way that, you know, the conspiracy theories out there, right? It's just not the case. I mean, so what really happened is I bought a DeLorean. I went back to 1986 and I went into the factory and I, no, just kidding. That would be crazy. We, there's, no, there's no way to plant stuff. So what I think a lot of people don't know is that there are MJ rookies in every one of those boxes. 
I believe it, and I'd have to confirm this. I believe the number is three. I think it's three cards and two stickers are like the average of what's in one of those boxes. Now you don't know what condition they're in and things like that, but I'm, I'm sure I'm pretty sure that's the number. I think we hit three and three. So we got an extra sticker, but the odds were almost a hundred percent that we were going to hit an MJ rookie in that box just by the sheer like mathematics of like the probability of the, of the product. I don't think a lot of people realize that the fact that he hit it in his first pack was blind luck and kind of awesome, but certainly we didn't know what pack that card would be in. And his reaction was very genuine. So there was no like planting of anything, but we were very, very, very confident that he was going to hit MJ rookies in that box because they're in the box. And we like, we just like just any 1986 clear box would produce MJ rookies. So I, there's no like planting. It's, it's honestly just that that was, that's what's in those boxes. And the fact that he hit it in the first pack was really good fortune. And the fact that one of them looks like it's in really good condition is even better fortune. It looks like, I don't know if it will get a 10. I don't, I'm not sure if it's come back from grading yet, but um, there's one that looked like it had a pretty good shot at, at a 10. If it, if it didn't hit a 10, maybe you get a nine, but there's no planting of anything. He opened a lot of flawless and, you know, there were a lot of, there were a bunch of hits. I don't think anything was like transcendent that came out of like, that came out of those boxes. Uh, and then of course there were a lot of cards that weren't, you know, that weren't what we were chasing, but there's no magical conspiracy. I wish I had a time machine. And honestly, if I had one, I probably would use it for other purposes than that. But uh, I, I'd go back to uh, I'd go back and ask Jackie for one of his jerseys, honestly. You know, that's what I would do. And real quick, I think it's a commentary. Like like you mentioned, the odds of getting a Jordan rookie and how different it is, you know, now where, you know, they were printing those cards. It wasn't it wasn't like it is today where like, you know, a hit is one in every, I don't know, every case or whatever. Cards weren't as valuable back then. So. Yeah, Jordan rookie. It's not like they were making sure that that there was only one in a case. The cards are way more common. It's a matter of did you get a ten? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you can you can affordably buy a lower grade version or a raw version of an '86 clear Jordan. It's it's you know at that point in time there was a lot of card production. It wasn't what it is today, where there's like sort of manufacturing scarcity where it's, hey, this thing is numbered to X. There's a one of one, there's not a five, there's not a 10, 20, whatever it might be. It was like much larger print runs. I mean, the reality is that there's sort of historical scarcity that's been, and grading scarcity that have come into that particular card because A, a lot of people didn't really treat them as valuable collectibles and like threw them out and, you know, lost them over time and things like that. So there's this, you know, attrition that goes on naturally. People treated them like garbage. And so a lot of people put them in crappy binders or screw downs or did threw them in a backpack. And so you lost a lot that way, or at least you had a lot that were greatly damaged. And then there's just the sheer fact that a very small percentage of cards that come off the conveyor belt, so to speak, are, are like PSA 10 quality. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I think what a lot of people don't appreciate, and for anyone who's in the hobby and collects, this is obviously like a duh statement, but for people who don't, you'll get a lot of this. So I'll use an example. I have people all the time when they find out what I do, or I have friends who know what I do, and they'll send me pictures of their card. Like, I kept this in this case my whole life. I kept this, you know, I kept it in the case. I never took it out, whatever. I'm like, 
Well, the thing that you don't know is that a lot of like the card's fate from a Gracie perspective was in many ways sealed before it even came out of the pack. You know, like it could have a print line. The centering is like the centering is a huge issue. Like a lot of these cards are not centered, right? They're huge fat sides, world one versus the other. That like so a lot of the stuff that even the edges and the corners, some of that stuff, like some of the edges get free just out of the machine. So a lot of the the sort of like grading fate of these things is determined by the manufacturer after it comes out in the eighties. You know that happened, so it's like you know the the universe of PSA tens is tiny because you have to get through all those things and then get a ten, and that's why those tens are worth as much as they are. Sam, we were talking earlier about emerging markets and things like that, and we talked a little bit about other items like toys, right? What what do you see? Obviously, we could talk a little bit more about toys, whatever it is that you know you have some some background on that. Uh, what else do you see that's kind of like an untapped market? And maybe I'm, I don't want to lead the, the the question, but it's just always interesting to me how like something like F1 could catch fire, right? But then here in the United States, we had NASCAR for years and years and years. And the NASCAR market is, you know, trade, trading card wise is is dead. And I'm always curious about why that is. Like, is there an untapped market or is NASCAR just basically undervalued? So these are just random thoughts in my head. My question is, do you see something that's undervalued and also something that is primed for a breakout? Well, I think you can think about this a couple of different ways. So if you think about it in terms of like sort of categories of IP, right, or, or leagues and properties, you can think about there are definitely opportunities there. And I can go through a couple of those. Just This is just me speaking just based on what I'm observing. So I'm on this, I'm on this ride like everyone else is seeing what's happening. And then there's also like actual categories of memorabilia, types of memorabilia, types of cards, that that's where you have things like tickets and VHS tapes and things like that. So I would say in the like the actual property part of things, the IP part of things, we're seeing huge growth outside of the traditional like big four sports. Certainly soccer has, has had their moment. I don't think like so- the soccer market has definitely grown tremendously over the last few years. I think that market still has room considering a like, you know, the world cup is happening in November and I think that'll help a lot. Us being in it is helpful because getting more us buyers helps the market. A lot of the collect, most of the collectibles market is in the U S but that point also leads to the same conclusion, which is that given that soccer is the most popular sport in the world as folks outside the U.S. increasingly adopt collecting and adopt card buying and things of that nature, you would imagine that's where they're going to gravitate. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think to address F1 specifically, Drive to Survive is probably the catalyst that moved that market to where it is. And you've seen it's not just cards. You saw their ratings. I mean, they're adding races in the U.S. U.S. numbers are at all-time highs. I think that reality show has been a huge hit for them. There's only 20 drivers, which means that they're all gigantic global superstars. And now they're becoming celebrities in the United States where collecting is very popular. And so I think that's a lot of what's going into it. I believe NASCAR is doing something similar. I think it's like the USTA is doing something similar. I think PGA is doing something similar. I think a lot of uh, properties are actually going and going to create a sort of drive to survive type model, which is really like 
popularized by Hard Knocks, you know, all the, like a bunch of years ago at the NFL and HBO. So I think that all those things will have could have their moment, right? It's like if uh, if NASCAR's version of Drive to Survive ends up being a huge hit and tons of people they can fall in love with the drivers and the racing teams and start watching the races. It stands to reason that they'll want to collect them. That like, that's not crazy to me, but you're seeing it. UFC cars doing really well. WWE cars doing, doing, doing really, really well. You're seeing a lot of folks that are also buying cards of celebrities and people that are, you know, the non athletes, which is also, again, it just like it, a lot of the, the fundamentals of the market would lead you to conclude that the, the, that's not that surprising because a lot of that stuff is happening. Is that speculation though? You know, if you're going that to that end, is is that more speculation? What do you think? Or is that really a market that's primed for breakout? I mean, it's all speculative in a sense. I mean, I think like I mean, look, I'm I'm working here and like I'm long this entire industry. I think within it, you're gonna have like no market goes up forever. You're gonna have rise and fall. I think people think too much in terms of absolutes. So it's a it's a very, very, very all or nothing binary, like Everyone thinks of, ooh, it's a bubble and the bubble will burst. Well, I, that's, I don't really subscribe to that type of thinking. It's more, okay, a market might get hot, a market might cool down, a market, you know, different like sort of sub markets within it can, can go up and down. In my opinion, I think, I think a lot of those markets, a lot of those products are going to like over time be on an upward trajectory, whether that's like up and to the right in a flat line or if it's like hyperbolic growth, I mean, or exponential growth, I don't know. I mean, I think anything is somewhat speculative in the sense that you don't know what the future holds, but I think as long as there's demand and people continue to find those things valuable, they'll continue to hold value. I think it's honestly, it really comes down to that. It comes down to the fact that like, do people enjoy this stuff, you know, or like, do you, do you want to have a Beyonce card? There's a point in time where, most people are like, nah, I don't really want a card of a singer, then it's going to hurt the market. You know, and like, I think the advantage sports have is that the sports card market has existed for a really long time and has stood the test of time, by the way, not without its own trials and tribulations, the junk era and all that stuff that happened and overproduction. And, and then it got back on, on track and now it's in an amazing growth phase, but that market has shown that it's been there and it's consistent and people have found value in it. And so I think that for people that feels less speculative and feels safer, but I, I would say with other types of cards, you know, time, time will tell, but it, it's not, it doesn't seem crazy to me. Like it does like they don't, these other types of cards, it makes sense. Like it makes a ton of sense to me. I'm just trying to digest the whole, the whole thing. Uh, you're right. Like I, I like what you said, you're, you know, you're, you don't subscribe to this idea of it being a, a bubble, but that, you're long. I mean, this, this, you're, you're in it, right? This part of your, this is your career. And you see that, you know, how much enjoyment people get out of collecting. Sam, there's something I'm really curious about. You mentioned Netflix type shows. I know that Golden has uh, had something planned for a while and, and that, that's going to be something that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Could you talk about that, about, you know, this Netflix Golden partnership and what that might look like? Yeah, for sure. So um, we sold the show uh, to Netflix. It's being created by a company called Wheelhouse, which which made Pawn Stars. Um, so Brent Montgomery founded that company. He has a, a great history of creating reality shows and all kinds of different content, frankly. Um, but he's definitely not a stranger to this this sort of type of industry and this type of context as Pawn Stars is all about the crazy, unique, amazing, valuable stuff that came into that pawn shop. That was the basis of the show. 
the show is going to be centered around Ken. Ken, uh, for anybody who's encountered Ken, is is a larger than life figure, and has amazing famous friends, and has like and just is is a huge personality. Uh, and, but it's also going to be about this stuff that we come across, you know, on a on a daily basis. But it's really focused on like the really really special stuff. So it's, you know somebody might bring us something that's truly unique and wants to get a value on it and might want to sell it or we might have to convince them to let it go or you'll have folks who might come to us and say hey you know i i need this particular item or i've always wanted one of these and can you get it for me can you find it for me and and it's it's through it's the the chase of of finding it and tracking it down but it's it's awesome. We just started filming a couple of weeks ago, actually, in our office. So if you go there, there's Netflix crews, there's camera crews all around the office. And so we're going to be filming for the next few months and it's going to be filming a lot of amazing things with, with guests and celebrities and athletes and just a really amazing roster, which I'm contractually not allowed to say anything about or I'll be in, I'll be in, the, uh, in the East River. But, but it's going to be awesome. Um, and so it's going to come out, I think, later this year. But yeah, we're super excited about it. And we also think, obviously, it's great for the company, and great for us. But just like the Drake thing, I think it's great for the hobby, right? It's just, hey, somebody, you know, somebody may be browsed around Netflix and get into it and, you know, watch the episodes and decide they want to they want to collect again or, or be like, hey, you know what? I wonder where those baseball cards are in my parents' attic, you know, and, and I think it will be a great way to help continue our effort to make it more mainstream for everybody. So we're very excited. Agreed. Agreed. Have you cast who's going to be the chum Lee? <laughs> we have some epic characters actually in our office that are, that are, I mean, it won't be, it'll be different roles, but yeah, we've got some, uh, we've got some gems in our office. I promise you that who are going to, who are going to play prominent roles. Yeah, there's no shortage of characters, right, in, in, in the hobby. Uh, and I'm sure Golden, same thing. Sam, thanks so much, man, for you know spending part of your afternoon uh, with, with us, with me. How can people engage? You know, you got Golden. Can they engage with you personally if, if they want to? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you want to buy stuff or just look at window shop at, and create crazy, crazy, crazy items, you can go to golden.co. You can go to Golden Co. across social. People can definitely check me out. I'm not a, an avid social poster myself but you can go check me out i'm the real sam wise across all the social assets hit me up on linkedin always interested to talk to different people happy to answer questions looking to network in the in and outside the hobby so i'm an open book but yeah check us out and you know hopefully i'll, I'll talk to many of your listeners at some point in the future awesome thanks again sam really appreciate it and uh, best of luck to your celtics in the playoffs thank you i'm very nervous but i'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic Well, good luck and hope to talk to you soon, man. Take it easy. Thanks for having me. Golden Auctions is a powerhouse in the sports collectibles industry. And the Jackie Robinson jersey is a kind of museum quality item that keeps the golden name at the forefront of the collectible industry. Pair that with Instagram videos of Drake and Ken Golden breaking cases of 1986 Fleer basketball. And it's the kind of entertainment that not only helps keep Golden relevant, but that also boosts the entire sports card industry. I'm personally looking forward to the Netflix show that's currently being filmed. And I'd like to thank Sam for all the insight he shared today. His work and expertise has certainly made a difference to the Golden brand. 
And I'd like to thank you for spending part of your day with Alts. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next episode, take care.